Hi everyone, Win Claybaugh here. If you love animals as much as I do, you'll really love this week's interview from the Master's Library. Faith Maloney founded Best Friends Animal Sanctuary 37 years ago with a pledge to end the practice of euthanizing millions of animals a year and finding them forever homes. Our conversation covered everything from puppy mills and animal hoarders to the wonderful work Best Friends does to educate the public, provide shelter to animals rescued from natural disasters, and more. If you enjoy learning about Faith Maloney and Best Friends, please share this with your friends and visit masterspodcastclub.com to sign up for our mailing list. And remember, Masters Podcasts are now available on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Enjoy this Masters Classic interview. Hi everybody, this is Wynn Claybaugh, and I think that this is kind of a first of this type of an interview that I am so honored and privileged to do here today for our Masters listeners, for our brilliant, amazing people in and outside of the beauty industry. If you're not in the beauty industry, you're certainly friends with uh, people in the beauty industry, which is probably how you got turned on to this uh, wonderful interview. And I love it that we're able to expand our audience. Uh, it seems like the, the, the beauty industry tends to be kind of a catalyst and a gathering spot for a lot of people and a lot of different causes to make a difference on this planet. And I have a feeling that that might be part of your story here today. Let me just introduce who I'm with. I'm here with uh, Faith Maloney. Faith, welcome to Masters. Thank you very much for having me. And I personally have to thank you because you drove how many hours to be here today? Couple of, just a couple of hours. A couple of hours, but then you still have to drive a couple of hours back. And, oh, yeah. And you had how much notice on this? A couple of days? Yeah, but that was okay. I was just thrilled to be invited. Well, I'm just so thrilled that you would accept the invitation and uh, and do whatever you had because I know you had to change some things in your schedule to be here today. And But knowing that I was here in southern Utah, which is where I'm at right now in St. George, I wanted to have this opportunity, which, by the way, Faith, whether you knew this or not, you've been on my list for a couple of years simply because I'm such a big fan of your organization and what you've accomplished. So let me give our listeners a little bit of information on who you are. Uh, You are one of the founders of Best Friends, which is this animal care sanctuary that includes a clinic, adoptive programs, and you're a consultant for not just within Best Friends, but you're kind of a a consultant within the industry, correct? That's right. That is correct. Yes. I teach workshops. I speak at conferences. I go around the country uh, talking to people who are working with animals. And I think I should just say for your listeners, because they're listening to my voice and they're saying, she's not from southern Utah. (laughs) (laughs) I get that. Um, I just want to say that I'm originally from England, and I came here in 1971, uh-huh. so it's almost 40 years ago now. Uh-huh. And I'm an American citizen now. I'm proud to be so. Wow. So just wanted to get that out of the way <laughs> in case people are here listening to that voice and saying that's not a Southern Utah accent. <laughs> well, hopefully they're not thinking that I'm a Southern Utah accent either. So, uh, uh-huh. you know, but we love being here because this has kind of become a, a wonderful retreat for you and your passion and your mission mm-hmm. uh, to be here in, in Southern Utah. In the early days of Best Friends, Faith spent much of the day in the direct care and feeding of the animals. These days, she devotes an increasing amount of time to helping people from all over the world 
who are starting sanctuaries themselves. On any given day, there is usually at least one group visiting best friends with plans to start a sanctuary or other local animal care program. For those who can't come and spend time at the sanctuary, Faith has produced manuals like how to start an animal sanctuary and, and offers help and guidance on the telephone. So, I mean, you've done quite a bit of work in this area, so we're going to say that you're the expert, uh-huh. and you're going to teach us what we need to know today. And so maybe people are sitting here thinking, well, why is there a master's interview devoted to this? As I said in the very beginning, I think that the beauty industry is a place where people come to look for support and for help, whether it's financial support or volunteer support or emotional support for a variety of different causes. And Mm -hmm. the beauty industry is notorious for raising money for cancer awareness or research or for battered women or for abused children or AIDS or Mm -hmm. whatever the cause is. Or abandoned animals in this case, Uh, you know, unwanted animals. Animals play such a huge part in people's lives that, you know, just talking to some of the, the, the students and the people I've seen who are involved in the beauty industry, their pets are incredibly important to them. And so, you know, that goes for all human beings, or a lot of human, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of human beings love their animals, and they're very important in their lives. Unconditional love. Well, they are for me. I have uh, three dogs. Uh I have uh, (laughs) Felony, Kilo, and Pecker. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Good names. Uh (laughs) uh, My my parents are in their 80s, and they have their little dog, Nick. And this this dog, I swear, just kind of keeps them going. Mm-hmm. You know, you call up, how you doing, Dad? Oh, I'm, I'm fine. You know, this hurts, this aches. How's Nick? Oh, Nick! Yes. Nick today did this. And he's, he just can't wait to tell me the, the latest adventure of their dog, Nick. Uh-huh. So you see the role that animals can play in the lives of, of many of us. So. And I've heard you say, you know, it doesn't really matter, you know, what you look like, what you smell like. I always say sometimes it's better if you smell a little. You know, the dogs actually prefer it. <laughs> if you're too clean, they're not so keen on it. But uh, they are always responsive to you. You know, as, as I heard you say in a presentation, you go to the mailbox, come back in. You know, the dog is greeting you like you've been away for 10 years. Yeah. And that's a wonderful affirmation to have in your life. And I think that's what, why people love dogs and cats and other animals. Because mm. at the sanctuary, we don't just do dogs and cats. We have bunnies and we have horses, parrots, wildlife farm animals, some. So, and those relationships, the people who are very involved in all those different species form very deep, lasting bonds with those animals. And they become very important in their lives. Sometimes if your other relationships aren't going so well, you know you've always got that consolation. I actually think that sometimes with people, like people who are struggling with whatever, with its lack of self-esteem or happiness or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, and I sometimes vocalize it, you know, you need to get a pet, you need to get a dog, you need to get a cat. You need somebody who's just going to bring unconditional love and joy to your life when it seems like everything else is falling apart for you. And also another point is being needed is something that we all appreciate, we all like, and it gives us something outside of ourselves. Because when we get stuck in ourselves, it can get very dark when we just get locked in our own heads. But getting up in the morning, knowing that we have to feed an animal, even if it's a goldfish, you know, that goldfish is dependent on you. And so it takes you out of yourself. And I think that is one other great gift that animals give us. Uh, They keep us going. 
Well, just to give our listeners a little bit of a, an idea of this sanctuary, again, it's in southern Utah, and it was founded how many years ago? We've been there 26 years. And how large is this sanctuary? We have uh, 37,000 acres. 37,000. So you're thinking, people listening to this thinking, oh, it's her backyard. This is not your backyard. 37,000 acres. Yeah, yeah. And at any given time, how many animals are you taking care of? Approximately around 1,700. It varies between 1,700 and 2,000 depending on seasons and was, we have a wildlife area, so we get to work on a lot of wildlife, and it can can boost the numbers, and then they settle back down. But around 1,700 every single day. And as you said, it's not just uh, dogs it's mm-hmm. and cats. It's, it's parrots. You know, parrots uh, are tremendously misunderstood. People will often go to a pet store, and they'll purchase a, a little tiny baby bird, and not realize what they're taking home. You know, parrots are a huge commitment. They live a tremendously long life. A macaw, the bigger kind of parrots, they live our lifespan. They will go into the 80s and their hundreds even. But people who know parrots, and some of your listeners here will know parrots, they are often described as a permanent three-year-old. They never grow up and they never leave home. (laughs) Oh, wow. So they are incredibly challenging. And there's a tremendous amount of parrots that come, we call it come into the system, meaning they're unwanted. You know, they scream, they bite, they're a handful. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people end up with a parrot that, so we do a lot. We have about 100 parrots that we take care of. Um, We know of a lot more out there, too, that we're assisting with and helping. And we have horses and um, burros and mules and some farm animals, pot-bellied pigs. That's another one. Oh, they thought it was going to be a cute little... Oh, my goodness. And now we're up against a new trend out there. They're calling them teacup pigs. By the way, there's no such thing. They still grow to 100-plus pounds. 150, 250 pounds. <laughs> Not so teacup. No. And, and one of the deceptions on that one is that boy and girl pigs can make baby pigs pretty young. Wow. So often what these breeders will do is they'll bring in the people and say, look, here are the parents. But the parents are still babies. Got it. And so they're seeing a piglet and then babies making babies. Is that legal? Well... Like how do they legally do that? Because that's the world out there. Huh. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, if you talk about what's legal, you know, just to get into an area, we talked about dogs earlier. One of the things that we fight against a lot are puppy mills. Mm-hmm. And I would like to say they're not legal, but right. of course they are in yeah. this country. People can breed animals. Right. But we're beginning to learn more about the conditions these ha- animals are bred in. And we're trying to get to the consumer, i.e., the person who's looking to purchase or acquire an animal is don't buy one, either on the internet or through a pet store. Go to your local shelter. Mm-hmm. Even if you want a purebred, you have it, have it in your mind, you absolutely have to have a beagle. There's beagle rescue, and a lot of the shelters have beagles wow. and poodles and everything else you can think of. Right. So um, we're trying to get to people on the buying end, because it's very hard to stop the breeding, because it is unfortunately legal. Right. Like the potbelly pig thing. It yeah. doesn't matter. It's a scam. Yeah. These people are lying. But, you know, nothing, I'm unfortunately against that. Right. <laughs> I hope you're okay if I mention this. Uh, Best Friends kind of became sort of famous recently because of 
you took on the Michael Vick. Yeah, yeah, twenty-two. We 22, took twenty-two dogs. Twenty-two dogs. Do you mind from telling a, that story? Because it's no, it's I, a story of education as it's, well. It really it's is heartbreaking, but it still yes. educate us. Yes, absolutely. I think many people will remember the case because it really hit big, you know, right. huge publicity, because this young man was a leader in his sport, you know, much admired. I don't personally watch football, but I gather he was pretty good at it. Right. And a handsome man, you know, lots of good things, money, everything. And then to find out this dirty secret right. that he had at one of his properties there in Virginia where he had a kennel, I think it was called Bad News Kennels. Mm. And he and a group of friends from, I think, from childhood, because uh, a lot of folks, unfortunately, grow up in the fighting industry, and this, I think, was his story as a young man. But they were continuing to do it as adults who really should have known better. And they were raided, as we know. And actually, I feel very proud of a lot of the people who were involved in that whole rescue because traditionally those raids end up in death. You know, all those animals are then euthanized. Mm. And they're said to be too dangerous to be let out. They're, they're not safe, etc. So fortunately, a lot of other people stepped in. The ASPCA was one group from New York, you know, who stepped in and came in and evaluated the dogs. And I think, if my memory serves me correctly, only one or two of those dogs were euthanized mm. at that impounding. Mm. A lot of them were deemed okay and were immediately sent to other rescue groups. Best friends stepped up to take the 22 most difficult mm. that were evaluated as having issues and problems. The easy ones went into foster care. There's a wonderful group in San Francisco called Bad Rap, a pit bull rescue, and they took a lot. And now a lot of them are therapy dogs. You know, wow. they're going to visit people in hospitals and wonderful. So we stepped forward and took on these 22. And they, when you hear the worst or the most difficult, the mind immediately goes to, well, they must be dangerous or vicious or they bite people. Uh-uh. Mm. One of the problems with kenneling in these businesses is they have minimal people contact. So their social contact is missing. And if you're not social with the dog when they're very young, they're often scared, they go around scared, they cower, they're terrified of people, they, you know, they, they can't walk on a lead. You know, there's all kinds of problems. And the majority of that group fell into that category. They were really unsocialized. We did get some of the more notable ones. Lucas, who was the grand champion, who mm. won a lot of money for those idiots. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful dog. Mm. But the court has uh, designated that he doesn't leave the sanctuary. Okay. Not because there's anything wrong with him. He's one of the friendliest and sweetest dogs you've ever seen. Mm. They were very worried that he'd be snapped up and be put back in the industry oh, wow. because of his success. Right. So um, Lucas will stay at the sanctuary for and all he, his life. He's a pit bull? They were all and pit bulls. And he's how old? Lucas, I think, is about four or five at this point. Mm. Very heavily scarred. You can tell that he was in the ring. And I'm going to tell you something else which I learned through doing this, which is really sick. There are a lot of 
cases you see in the media with pit bulls and, you know, attacking and hurting people. And these are often just backyard bred or, you know, dogs that they weren't really paying too much attention to in terms of the breeding. The one thing about dogs out of the fighting industry, all of those dogs, and I repeat, all of those dogs have to be people-friendly. If they show any kind of aggression towards the people who are handling them, even in the midst of fighting, they're immediately killed. So every dog that's bred into the fighting industry is people-responsive. Wow. Now, when I heard that, I think I just about died mm. because that's what the people in the industry play on wow. to get them to fight. They go through a whole series of, the, when they pick a dog, they decide on which ones are going to be trained for the ring, so to speak. They will start creating that bond and doing a lot of things with that dog, taking them out, spoiling them, you know, all of that. So when they're actually fighting... They're fighting to please that person. Oh, wow. Isn't that awful? That was horrible. That, when I first heard that, I was just horrified wow. because that's playing on the natural love and you know, affinity that dogs have for people mm. and then turning that against them so that they will go and fight to the death. I mean, hit press big time mm -hmm. simply because Michael Vick was famous. Right. And in fact, in a funny kind of a way, because he was famous, the public became more aware of what was going on in this industry than had he just been the regular guys who do this all over the country, by the way, even though it's illegal. As horrific as that whole story has been, in, in, a, in a way, did it kind of help your cause in I know. getting the word out? Absolutely. He became a in a funny kind of a way, a poster child for uh, what was wrong with right. dogfighting. So in a strange kind of a way, because I hate to say this, but dogfighting busts are happening all the time, all right. over the place, right now as we're speaking. But it's not hitting the front page of the New York Times or being on television or, you know, USA Today or all of these other people that cover this. So... We are helping to change the public's view, we hope, of pit bulls, but not with any unreality. We know that some cases are bad, but we know that pretty much any dog can bite. Yeah. I mean, I've had more problems with Cocker Spaniels and Chihuahuas <laughs> than I've had with pit bulls, but the pit bulls get the media, which is unfortunate. Yeah. So tell us more about your story and your journey I mean, at what age did you realize that this was a passion of yours, and then what did you do with that passion? And again, this is not just a story about an animal sanctuary. This is about any kind of a cause, anything that mm -hmm. you're passionate about. Obviously, you went through your process to get to where you're at today, and, and the rest of us can learn from that. Yes, and I, in this respect, I'm a bit of a late bloomer. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people I meet who work in, with animals like like myself, uh, they'll tell the stories about, you know, as a child, I picked up all the strays. Actually, that was my mother. Oh, okay. In our home, uh, Irish family. Again, I've, I've told you about the English accent, but my, both my parents were Irish. And my mother was, uh, just loved dogs, and she was the rescuer. Mm. And I think as a child, it was kind of something my mother did. It really wasn't until I was a bit older. I got together with a group of friends, 
best friends, good right. name for it. And collectively, we found that we shared a feeling that there was something wrong with the way it was. And this was back in the late 70s when uh, we started really vocalizing and talking about it. Back then, the situation was pretty bad. And I, people are very shocked by the number I'm going to give you now. But back in the 70s, they were euthanizing anywhere between 17 and 20 million animals a year mm. in shelters and pounds and that kind of thing. People go, no, you, you got that wrong. And we say no. Because back then, there were no programs like we have now. We have spay-neuter programs. We have adoption programs. We have a lot of programs. So a lot of dogs don't ever make it into shelters and pounds anymore. We still to this day, are euthanizing somewhere between 4 and 5 million, which is still way too many, but considerably less. So back in the 70s, the situation was really appalling. Um, very few animals made it out uh, once they got into the system, whatever that was at the time. And so this group of us, we got together and we said, we have to do something. We can make a difference. Mm -hmm. We made that pledge to be no-kill, meaning that we did not euthanize for the odd sniffle or, you know, mange or behavior issues, which were very relatable to. So that was a pledge right from the beginning. So I was a little bit older. You know, when we came to our place here in southern Utah, and I, I like to tell this to our younger staff, I was already in my 40s <laughs> and with my kids. You know, and I had three children who were all involved, my middle girl said uh, quite vocally, I don't think so, and went off and joined the Navy, <laughs> which was very fine. <laughs> and she made a wonderful Navy person for many years and is now a school teacher in South Carolina. I'm very proud of her. And two of my other kids remained involved. Uh, my son became a veterinarian. But that took a long time. That wasn't in the beginning. He was uh, part of the grunt team like we all were. And you mentioned that in the early days, I was direct animal care. That means every single morning, this was seven days a week too, because we didn't have any of this fancy five-day-a-week business. Uh, seven days a week, I would go down from my little old single-wide trailer, walk down to the kennel area, and be part of the very small group of people feeding hundreds of dogs. And dogs, I like to say now, especially because of the television show, I actually created Dogtown. Which is true. Uh -huh. I did. <laughs> I was the original wow. Dogtown person. So I did that for, I worked it out. I did it for seven days a week for 11 years straight. Wow. Fed and related oh to dogs. My gosh. Yeah, I was uh, unofficial animal control for our local area because there was nothing. So I was the dog catcher, the odd cat catcher as well. So I did a lot of that very direct, hands-on, which gives me a, a good basis for the work I do now, which is helping people to do the same kind of work. Right. You know, I've done it. I've walked that path. So I know what that feels like to take care of dogs and, and cats, too. I've taken care of a lot of cats in my life as mm -hmm. well. How is it that some counties or cities uh, have, like, no-kill policies and others do? Mm -hmm. You know, I was at this restaurant and that I go to often. I was there for breakfast, and you know, a dog came up, and didn't have any tags or any identification, and so we 
you know, captured the dog, and, and it was a pit bull, mm-hmm. captured the dog and, you know, put a leash on him, and he was, I mean, he's well-trained, you know, sit, and he sat, and he was, you know, very happy and everything, and uh, a handful, and we were trying to figure out, you know, where to get him, and it was also on a weekend, too, it was on a Sunday, and so things were closed, and, but, but there were people who were very adamant, no, we have to call this city because they have a no-kill zone as opposed to that city to mm-hmm. where he may not, you know, come out. Yeah. Can you give us, well, just educate it, us more? Yes, it's really, uh, it really depends on who the people are in those areas. Right. And you'll find where, where you have, uh, like, as you say, the no-kill areas, it's a demand from the people who live in that community. Mm-hmm. And also people who are on their city councils or, you know, whatever it's called in that area, who are more enlightened and more forward-looking. So it comes down to people. Mm-hmm. And I know you speak a lot about people and all people are different but they actually have the power in this area it isn't so much you can create a template that you then plaster onto every single place because those people in that area are different and Mm -hmm. everyone comes with their own views and opinions and their own baggage one area that we're beginning to make some good inroads with this is actually in relation to feral cats or as we would like to call them, community cats. Mm -hmm. And these are cats that basically live around your hotels, your restaurants, out in the country, you know, I mean, just cats that are out there. And at one point were domestic, or they're the offspring of a domestic cat. Many communities, and here in Utah we've seen this quite a bit, especially up north, had ordinances that said you couldn't, feed free-roaming cats. Mm. You know, it was illegal, forbidden. So you called the animal control, they would come out, they'd trap the cats, take them back to the shelter and kill them. Now what happens with cats is cats are very clever at finding resources. (laughs) So if there was a food source or a shelter source in that area, it doesn't take long for that area to fill back up again. So you're again repeating that cycle. You're going out there, you're trapping them and killing them. And this is not an effective way of controlling uh, a free-roaming cat population. TNR, we call it. It's trap, neuter, return. Hmm. So what we have been very successful with, not only here in Utah, but also in other parts of the country, assisting other groups, is to get the authorities to okay that, to take that one as a bad thing, you know, put it onto the law books that people can trap, neuter, and return. Mm -hmm. And that has been very, very successful. One area I'd like to make a particular comment on is Jacksonville, Florida. Mm -hmm. And we partnered with the group there in Jacksonville. No cat, when they call the animal control there in Jacksonville, rather than that cat being taken into the shelter, and therefore its fate being usually to be euthanized, that cat is picked up and taken to a, a spay-neuter program. Mm. And that cat will be fixed so that it can't reproduce. Right. And then identified, which is usually a little tip across the ear, um, so that people can just see that that cat has been fixed, and that will be returned back to the community. So there's education of the community. Wow. And usually... The, the complaints are from intact cats because they're yowling and howling and they're you know behaving badly. Mm-hmm. So once they're fixed, they behave better. Mm-hmm. So people are often fine about it. And in Jacksonville, that program's coming into its third year now, and literally 
thousands of cats' lives have been saved because of that. And we're using that as a model for other communities and getting a lot of interest from other communities around the country because everybody wins. You know, the animal control doesn't want to go out there picking up cats and killing them. People love to feed their cats out there. They just don't want the nuisance element. And by doing this program, it's stopping the nuisance. Wow. So this has been amazing. How much of your work now is involved in like what you just shared? where you're educating communities, you're, you're involved in governments and, and policy and the law and, and well, all that. Well, a lot, because what we did, I say we, and now it's a whole team of people, just a few years ago they sort of sat down and said, okay, what are we still killing? You know, I gave you those numbers earlier. It used to be anywhere from 17 to 20 million. It's still four to five. And it's held at four to five for a long time and seemed difficult to budge. So our team got together and, you know, we know this is our world. uh, So we know our world. Um, Who is being killed? I mean, let's just look at it. Cats actually come top of the list. Again, a little bit of a shocking statistic. Of 70% of all animals killed in shelters are cats, 70%. The return rate, you know, when a person loses a cat or loses a dog, on average, and the figure varies a little, but on average, if a dog is lost, it's returned to its home about 34% of the time. If a cat is lost, it only is reclaimed 2% of the time. So cats make up the bulk of what's being killed. So we have a program, we call it Focus on Felines. It's one of our campaigns. And that is that TNR program I just mentioned is part of that. Microchipping for cats so that they can be scanned when they go into the shelter. And then a call can be done. You know, your cat's missing. Because sometimes people don't think to look for their cats immediately, unlike their dogs. So focus on felines is big. The other area we've touched on before is um, we call it Saving America's Dog, and that is our pit bull campaign, re-educating people about pit bulls and safely. You know, we're not naive. We do understand that there are some issues and problems, but there are things that people can do because the other bulk of animals being killed in shelters today are pit bulls and pit bull mixes. Hmm. We then have a campaign, again, I touched on it earlier, related to puppy mills. I mean, we could extend that to cat mills and bird mills and all that, but we focus primarily on puppy mills. And that is to educate people to not buy from these sources, the Internet, pet stores, that kind of thing. And the other campaign that kind of wraps it up as to what's happening out there, we call it First Home Forever Home. Um, first home first home forever forever home because again you're looking at that demographic what comes into the shelters okay you've got your your bully breeds you've got your cats I'll come back to where the puppy one fits in there in a moment but the first home forever home is a lot of people will either purchase or adopt a dog and then at the first hurdle you know the first time it pees on the carpet or does something which is considered to be an inappropriate human relationship behavior, they are then returned, brought back, 
given away, abandoned, dropped off in the country, you know, you name it. So we are working to help people keep their pets in their homes so they stay there so that at the first sign of a problem, we can connect them with a trainer or a behaviorist. What's happening a lot now with the economy is people can't afford to keep animals. So we've organized food drives around the country to supplement people who are going through that point where they might be surrendering the animal, giving the animal up. Okay, we can help you with some food. Um, Help with veterinary care. You know, all the things that people give up dogs for, usually behavior or economic reasons. So that is a huge part of what we're doing now, too. Back on the puppy mill one, and this, again, is another one of these horrific statistics, I gave you the four to five million that we're killing. The puppy mill industry, which is large, large corporations that do it, plus your mom and pop level, they are bringing into the system around four million dogs. I'm just talking dogs now. So they're breeding and introducing four million, and we're here on the other hand, our shelters and our pounds are having to kill four million. Got it. So that one kind of evens it out. So we need to stop that industry and encourage people to adopt. Do you have any statistics on the puppy mills? Because if it's a puppy mill and they're trying to sell puppies, what if they don't get adopted or they don't get purchased in time? So now they're not puppies. They're not cute, so to speak, anymore. Then what happens? It's a very dirty little secret here. And it's Isn't called, that what we're here for? We're here to educate ourselves. So. The, the thing that, again, uh, most people are completely unaware of is something called the, um, the breeder auctions. And these are, we have gone to several of these, usually undercover. You know, the button cams. You've seen Dateline and oh, yeah. all these shows, you know, where they, they go in because they don't like people usually from animal rescue, to go into these auctions. What happens with the parents, we're calling them, the offspring, the puppies, all usually all get shipped out. So, right. you know, they, some of them don't even survive transport because they people, I, I really don't see why people are investing in a business and they can't even do basic care, but this happens. It's the parent dogs that end up in the system because when you're breeding a dog, and it can, these can be Yorkshire Terriers, they can be Mastiffs, they can be just about anything, the breeders are really only interested in two body parts. For the females, it's the uterus, and for the males, it's the penis. Right. The rest of the dog can be falling apart, which we see a lot. Bad teeth, eyes falling out, skin issues, because they only want the reproductive bits. Right. So... What happens is those dogs get used up. So rather than killing them, because they can still make some money off them, they hold these auctions, which are usually not made very public except to the industry. And they start selling off to other breeders. You know, okay, I've used up this dog. I've got as many pups out of this dog, but maybe... You know, she's still got a few more years on her. Maybe you can get some more out of her. So breeders go to these places. And they start off, you know, selling them for, you know, some dollars, $200, 
$400 something. And then gradually, as the auction starts peeling down, they're going for less, you know, 20 bucks, 25 bucks. At a recent auction that some of our staff were at, and there's apparently some legal obligation to have money change hands, we managed to, and even though we don't, by buying, you can sometimes end up encouraging people, but here you had the last few dogs in this particular auction were going for a penny. So 10 dogs went for 10 cents. 50 dogs went for 50 cents. So this is what happens to those breeder dogs. And if people... Now, Oprah did a phenomenal show a couple of years ago now, and it's been repeated a few times, and she really came out superbly against the puppy mill industry. We were all very, very impressed with the producers of that show and the quality of that show because they really did state it like it was. Mm -hmm. But we've got to keep this in front of the public eye because it's so easy to fall into the trap of going to the mall if they have a pet store and then, you know, saying, oh, and the kids are saying, oh, you know, mommy, daddy, I, I really want that dog is that we would rather people did not purchase those animals because it then gives incentive to the people to breed them. Well, I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm so innocent in this process, you know, because I didn't know better. And and that goes for so many people. Out of my three dogs, you know, one was bought online. Another one was bought at a pet store. Now, the, the other one, though, we did find him on the street in Mexico. Yeah. And he weighed about two pounds, and he was full of worms and sick as could be. And uh, we found a vet down there in Mexico and got him cleaned up, got all of his legal paperwork, and, and brought him home. Excellent. Yeah. Great. But, you know, I pretty much everyone I talk to who's not aware of this, it's like any, like I said, this is our world, and we know our world. And it's the beauty industry is not a, a world I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. You know, that has its own language and its own uh, um, points of reference. And so here I am coming from this world. Right. And my job is to let you know and your listeners know what goes on, the reality of right. that world. Right. And why would you know? You know, yeah. that's the point. A lot of people, why would they know? There's lots of things I don't know. Mm. I mean, one of the things we were talking about earlier in your seminar was you know, not being judgmental. And it's so easy to cast judgment when you don't know right. something. And I was talking to a, a gentleman one time, and was, I was going on about something, whatever it was, and he turned to me and he said, Faith, what do you know about baseball? And I looked, he, he got me very well. And I looked at him and I said, Nothing. He said, absolutely. You know nothing about this area. And, of course, I could follow it up and say, I know nothing about a lot of areas. I just happen to know about this area. So that's my role in life is to help people understand this. And then they'll tell people. And then they will, you know, so this will be the last dog that you will have ever purchased because now you know. People can make educated decisions because they're aware. Because they know. And if you don't know, how do you know what to do? Mm. So this is our task. This is our job. And we do this. We were very lucky to get the National Geographic Dogtown Show, Four Seasons. Great platform. 
Um, we produce a magazine, you know, which goes all over the world. We have a voice. We have a platform. We have a website at www.bestfriends.org. Very simple. And that is a huge website. We have networks all over the country of people who are doing this kind of work. You know, the information is out there. Should one be, you know, interested to go check and look at it? What are some of the misconceptions that people have about adopting a rescue dog? So going to a, a local shelter to adopt, what's their, I think it all, probably all boils down to fear or to a lack of knowledge. So, mm-hmm. so what are the misconceptions about that? That is an excellent question because a lot of people don't go to uh, adopt a rescue dog because one thing I hear a lot of is, I'm scared, I don't want to go into that facility. They will say, I've heard people say, oh, they're all sick, or, you know, it's too much, it's too noisy, or I'm going to feel so sad, I'm going to want to take them all home, therefore I can't pick one. I mean, I, I hear this all the time. And actually for a number of years now, the animal welfare industry, what we do is more, comes in under the banner more of animal welfare, is we have taken adoptions out of the shelter for years now. Stores like PetSmart and Petco around the country have offered uh, adoption venues for dogs and cats. So when people are out shopping, just doing normal things, they have an opportunity to see the animals. Oh, they're set up right in front. Uh Uh-huh. I know. Right up in front. Every time we go up, if I let him, my partner George, we would have 20 dogs by now because... Mm -hmm. They're all out in front, and he wants to adopt every one of them. That's right. But it's a much less intimidating right. environment than, than to have the, to go to the, shelter. the, quote, shelter. Got it. But the other thing I should tell you is that shelters have changed dramatically. I mean, architects have stepped in there. They're now incredibly beautiful places. Oh, wow. They're not smelly, noisy, and nothing sick. So that has been changed a lot. But some of those are the misconceptions in people's minds, and they kind of go back 20, 30 years, when maybe that was true, but is really no longer true. The other thing about adopting uh, from a shelter is, for a lot of them, it's a guaranteed adoption. Ours is, at Best Friends, if people adopt from us. We what, what do you mean it's a guaranteed adoption? 100% guaranteed, I like to say. 100% guaranteed. Meaning, if at any point in that animal's life it doesn't work out, right. that animal can come back. Oh, wow. So uh, you're not kind of left with a problem. And we do a lot of, uh, with our adoptions and, and trainers, we have we can work people through issues and problems, but sometimes it isn't the right fit. Right. And we don't make people feel bad about that because right. it's happened to me. I mean, good heavens. I've tried to take some animals into my life that weren't a fit with the rest of my animals or my family and, you know, found another good place for them. So we understand that process. So we help people find the match. Uh, so that I like that about us. And, and that happens to, with a, a lot of places as well. So I think the the misconceptions that people have, or, or that they're uh, this one that we hear a lot too, especially with an older animal. People, will, an older can be over three, by the way. I mean, I consider older maybe ten, twelve, fourteen, fifteen might be getting not a little old, but right. still they're wonderful animals. But you'll find people say, "Well, I, we really want a puppy because we want to 
have to start with that relationship and we want to, etc. And that really is shows people don't know much about dogs. Right. Because dogs are incredibly versatile in their <laughs> in their lives. Um, almost at any age, and I'm really I'm going up into the 14 and 15s age groups, they go, okay, this is my new home. Okay, how do you like it here? Okay, right. get the idea. They adapt well. Oh, incredibly. Yes. So it just takes a little experience. And most people who ventured into adopting an adult animal will be laughing when they hear this because they know this they is know. true. So more information about what you do, uh, about volunteers that come. And again, you're using your experience as well as your, your sanctuary best friend as kind of a, a model for other people to, to yes. learn and, and duplicate and spread the, the message. Mm-hmm. So I'm involved with four workshops a year called How to Start an Animal Sanctuary. Okay. And we have groups of people that come in from all over the world. Mm-hmm. We've had Israel, South Africa, mm-hmm. uh, India, as well as all over the United States who are interested in seeing what we've done and how that then they can apply that in their own communities. So that is a big part of what I do. And I'm doing that literally all the time as well because people are coming in and around those workshop times. We have a dog behavior and handling workshops that we offer now. And these all can be found on our website, which again is www.bestfriends.org. And people can find out of all the workshops we do. And we really feel this is our mission at this point. I mean, we do still take care of a lot of animals, but no one place can do this. The problems are grassroots. The problems are where the problems are. You know, whether you're in in L.A. or whether you're in uh, Timbuktu, literally, (laughs) Timbuktu in Africa, that's where the problems are. And you need to know how to deal with those problems. I'm so glad that you said that because... I know people listening to this and say, oh, my God, I'm going to jump on a plane and I'm going to go volunteer at Best Friends, which you love. Yes. But right down the street from where you currently live. That's where the need is, and I'm glad you said that. Because, of course, we do love people to come, and we do. We have a lot of, of volunteers that come. We live in a very small community, so we don't draw a lot of people from the local community, but we have people come from all over in large groups, sometimes individuals, families, you know, will come and spend. Um, we had over 8,000 volunteers last year. but 8,000? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, many of those came for a few days, a week, a month. The lady from Israel, she saw the Dogtown show, and she packed up her 15-year-old son and said, we're going there. <laughs> and she came for a, f- a couple of months. Wow. You know, I mean, it was amazing. Wow. I know. But... Really, I'm so glad you said that about where the need is, because the need is at the local level. Mm-hmm. And some people are a little nervous, a little scared again, because animals are emotional. Right. And going and seeing animals that are really not in the best shape you know, can be too emotionally heart-wrenching right. for people. But the need is there, and there's all kinds of ways that people can volunteer. Right. It isn't necessarily going and walking dogs. It could, you could help put an event on, you know, if you're good at events. To raise money. Raise money. Because every cause Everybody needs money. Everybody needs the so money. So maybe you can't emotionally 
yep. handle working in the directly sh- in, in the, the shelter. shelter. But that shelter needs your talent to raise money you to could, provide yes. for the other people yeah. who are brilliant and coming in and showing up. It. And okay, go. Yeah, you got it. Got you it. got it. And of course, you're involved in the beauty industry, but we're also involved with the beauty industry because we need groomers, and mm-hmm. we have two staff groomers at Best Friends who work all the time. But we have volunteer groomers who come in and make the dogs look pretty. Right. And the cats that get matted, and you know, there's all kinds of ways in which to, to, and you can do that for a local shelter or facility to get dogs ready for adoption. For adoption. Wow. So I think there could be some translation wow. between the human hairstylist and the doggy hairstylist, because hmm. oftentimes it's just a clip and a shampoo. You know, we're not talking hmm. about the fancy cuts. We're just huh. making the dogs look presentable. Huh. So send a message out to people, uh, what is the need locally? Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that you have your grunt team. Uh-huh, yes. It, um, yeah, that's, you've got to have people that do the... The, the grunt work. The grunt work. We had a, a group that was with you all yes. last week. wonderful. How many came, like? 80. 80. Total of 80, yeah. I know. Um, and I'm really, really, really proud of... Uh, I'll you know tell Brennan and Sean. Yes. Oh, incredible! For putting uh, that together. Because this is this is hard work, you know. I mean, well, that's I'm what not... they were saying. It's, it's grunt work. Mm-hmm. They, they had to pay all their own expenses to, mm-hmm. to be there, and, and yet they're they're cleaning up and they're, they're cleaning up. I, you know, I up. actually call it we're actually servants. You know, we look at movies and we see how they have the upstairs and the downstairs and the butlers and the maids and the whole kind of thing. And we then become the butlers, the maids, because <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, right. we're preparing food, we're presenting food, we're removing the bowls from the food and washing them, and then we pick up the poop. Yeah. which results from that. So right. what other word could you describe? Because that's what we're doing. Right. And it's hard work. You know, yeah. it's all weathers. You know, we have four, all four seasons. Mm-hmm. So it can be over 100 and it can be below zero. So we're going through all of that. But these animals need to be taken care of seven days a week, and mm-hmm. it's heavy, heavy work. Wow. And I'm very glad that I've put my time in, you know, that I've done all that all those years so as I say sometimes I'm a bit naughty because I'm a little older now and so when the young staff will say things like um, oh I'm tired or this is too hard you know I'll do the I walk to school backwards both ways with no shoes in the snow whatever (laughs) it is that one Um, so I'm just very glad when they start that up and they look over at me and I'm going really you actually have a building to work out of I didn't have that I walked 10 miles in the snow to pick up poop. Yes. That's what you tell them. That's what I, I should tell them. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I've been told to ask you a couple of questions here. Okay. How does Best Friends get involved when natural disasters occur? Uh, the first big one for Best Friends, we'd had some relationship with some of the earthquakes in and around Los Angeles for a number of years. But the first really big one we got involved in was Hurricane Katrina, which, as we know, is five years ago now. And that really helped shape, really, a lot of what we do. I mean, yes, it was very interesting. And I feel very proud that when we were down in that area, some of our staff are from Louisiana and from that area. One of the graduates of my How to Start an Animal Sanctuary workshop had attended the the workshop. Three months later, she'd put down money for 50 acres in Tylertown, Mississippi, just across the line there. 
and they were very gracious that St. Francis um, Animal Sanctuary there. They offered us that acreage for our staging area during Katrina, wow. and we had about 6,000 animals go through our hands of so all kinds. That's how many animals were passed displaced through. because yeah, of Katrina. They went through our hands. Other oh, groups wow. were down there doing others. And, and this was dogs and cat, a lot of pit bulls, by the way. Dogs, cats, snakes, spiders, you know, you name it. They mm. came through our program there. Mm. And so that was very educational because of our staff having come from that area. We were the first ones in. We were in with the boats and the flooding, and we were the last ones out. Wow. We stayed there for nine months Wow. and took care of those animals. And we had a lot of grounding in direct animal care. That's one of our strengths. What do you mean by that? Well, some of the other folks that were down there, I think, had less, like, pit bull handling. Okay. We were very used to that. Okay. So we were able, I think, to offer a lot of help in that area right. because we knew what taking care of lots of dogs was like because we did it every day. But we have a group, and we've now done work in Haiti. Mm -hmm. And we just heard... Um, in fact, it was announced at one of our meetings recently that we're partnering with Humane Society International, HSI, to build a clinic in Haiti hmm. to service the animals in Haiti. Hmm. We were down there after the earthquake there. Hmm. Um, we were in Peru working with the earthquake there. We took animals from Lebanon during one of the wars there between Israel and Lebanon. The wonderful groups in Israel... And they would have taken the animals, but uh, the border was closed. So we were able to help there. We have Swiftwater-trained staff. We're now set. We've actually moved some of our equipment into Atlanta area as a staging area. Should any hurricane hit on the East Coast, we'll be actually set and prepared. Wow. So we're very involved in busy. that. We're busy. Oh, geez, this is amazing. <laughs> I know. Well, we do have a pretty large staff. How do animals come to you then? Okay, that's another good question um, because we hear of a lot of cases. One of our departments is community animal assistance, and we have 12 staff that man the telephones, email addresses. We get about 500 or so requests a week for help, so around 2,000 a month. I know. And these are all animals in crisis in one way or the other. Individuals, groups of animals, people, people crisis, you know, we, we deal with it all. And because we're no-kill, the ones we've got are taking up the space, if you like. So we're Do you not have a maximum be, capacity? Well, with that 1,700. You're at maximum. We, yeah, is what we like to keep at. So we... We have to say no quite a bit, but we don't say no and slam the phone down. We have, the, our staff is trained to offer resources, help, referrals to other organizations. We're networked around the country. Right. The one area that we hear a lot about now, unfortunately, is hoarders. And this may not be familiar to a lot of listeners, although now with TV shows it's just now, called just hoarders. Now, now all of a sudden it's like, all over the TV, mm -hmm. like, like there's... I know, both object and animal hoarders. Right. And people say, oh, is this new? Is this something new? And the answer is, of course, no. <laughs> the crazy cat ladies and the crazy dog man, you know, have been around for a long, long time. But this, unfortunately, is presenting quite a big challenge to the animal welfare community because you'll find these people 
will acquire vast amounts of animals. So when the crisis hits, which can be illness, can be death, it can be financial ruin, you know, all of these things that present a crisis, it isn't just one dog or cat yes. that's coming into the system. It's, wow. in many cases, hundreds, wow. which present a tremendous problem. And, of course, it is a mental illness mm. we're looking at. The animal is incidental. I know... A lot of people may not be aware of that because these people will often masquerade as animal lovers. But in reality, of course, they don't really love the animals. It's a manifestation of some sort of mental illness um, of a variety of causes, including obsessive-compulsive disorder can be part of it, the acquisition part of that, dementia, schizophrenia. You know, the, the labels are endless, but basically there's something not right in the head. And these people think they love the animals, but because they have no resources, it's actually tremendously, tremendous acts of cruelty mm. being visited upon tens of animals, hundreds of animals, sometimes thousands of animals. And this is something that we as an animal community have to deal with and face. Mm. And no place can step in and take over, you know, with hundreds of animals. The one situation we had just a few years ago was in Pahrump, Nevada, just outside of Las Vegas, 60 miles out of Las Vegas. And it was both institutional hoarding, I'll explain that in a minute, and individual hoarding. The woman who was running the place, she had over 100 cats in her home. When the deputies went in, she was arrested immediately for mm -hmm. lack of care. And the facility, which was actually was an organization, it was a 501c3 charitable organization, but had been mismanaged, and that was over 700. So we ended up being responsible in that situation. We stepped in for over 800 cats oh out of one gosh. situation. Yeah, in terrible, terrible conditions, skinny, matted, diseased. It was really... It, just one of those horror shows that you just can't believe. And you sometimes do see them on TV now. This presents a huge challenge for our world right now, mm -hmm. is how to relate to these, how to deal with these, and how to, again, get the public to understand that these people are damaged. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not animal lovers, so please don't take your cat to them or your dog to them, mm -hmm. just because they're the cat lady or the dog lady or whatever go check these places out if you need to hand over an animal, you know, rather than just take someone's word for it. Because these animals end up in situations of absolute horror, mm. and we do not support it in mm. any way. Mm. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit, because obviously it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, you, you have a team of people that you need to manage, and those team of people, especially if they're doing part of the, the grunt team, which sounds mm -hmm. to me like everybody's part of the grunt team, <laughs> <laughs> Except for you. Well, you. <laughs> well, no. I, I mean, to be fair, we have, especially because we're such a large organization now, we have people who do that work right. and who are highly, highly respected because that is that is your frontline work and that right. is your your individual relationship with the animals. But we have a, a support team. I just mentioned that uh, community animal assistance, and that's a very tough job because that's your front lines. That's when people are calling in crisis, they hit a lump in the road. And as I said, it can be financial, it can be all kinds of reasons why they can't keep an animal. So that's a tough job. 
and then we have IT, and we have all these other things you have to have. You're and running a business. We're running a big business. Yeah. You know, we have over 490 people on staff. 490? Mm-hmm. We have... How, how, how do you raise money for all of this? We have people who raise money for all of this. <laughs> <laughs> There's a full-time team. That's another people. full-time job, development, yeah. as they call it. Right. And we have, uh, you know, legal, and we have rapid response, as we just talked about. I mean, we really have a massive operation. Wow. Wow, and wow, based wow. out of little old Kanab, Utah. Well, my, so my question is, at the end of the day, you're still managing a business. Yes. You're still managing a team of people. Talk to me about the culture that exists exists there uh, yes. with, with how you take care of all the people. You, we've talked about how we take care of the animals. Mm-hmm. How do you take care of that many people? And uh, I was also asked to ask you about what happens at Best Friends every Thursday during lunch. Yes, how oh, I love that. Um, <laughs> I the, have no idea why I'm asking I'll, that, but I was told I'll leave to, to that one first because okay. that was kind of cute when we had the group out visiting. Mm-hmm. Every Thursday at lunch... At about, we've started five minutes earlier, 12.25. Our lunch is kind of from 12 to 1. Um, one of us found a group. Myself, I'm part of that, and one of the other folks. We conduct a meeting with everybody who's in the room. You know, it could be staff, visitors, volunteers, someone just walked through the door. And we share uh, news from the week related to animals and the outreach work that we do. So that's part of that. And if we have any groups there that are visiting, you know, from any kind of schools or programs or our interns, they get introduced. And this is kind of what happened just recently. That's great. The group was introduced. But taking care of the people, that is hugely important because you've got to have happy people to take care of the animals. And it was something you said in a seminar that I was fortunate to attend where you spoke about a lot of these topics. And you mentioned uh, this little phrase, attitude over aptitude. Mm -hmm. And we have used that as our mantra for many, many years. Because even though we take care of animals, we're actually in a people business. The people are surrendering animals, people are adopting animals, and people are donating to help the animals. So there's people everywhere. You can't go and hide in a room and just say, I'm just going to take care of animals. There's a person. The volunteers are people, you know, whatever. So we hire for people skills. Um, they have to love animals and like animals, but you can teach a lot of the animal work you know, to our, our caregivers. You can teach them how to give a shot or, um, you know, give fluids to a cat or, you know, feed, take care of, whatever. So the attitude is the most important part of who we hire. And I'm always thrilled when I sit every day in our lunch area. We have a, a lunch available to visitors every day, and I sit with volunteers. I usually look around the room, and I find someone I don't know and haven't seen before, and that's who I go sit with because I want that feedback. And I'm thrilled when people say, your staff is so friendly, they're so kind, they were helpful, because that's what we want from our people. But to support our people, too, we need to have events. We do, you know, social get-togethers. We get the $2 at the movie night. We do bingo nights and Las Vegas nights. And, you know, uh, (laughs) there's a lot of hiking in our area. It's beautiful. So there's hiking and there's cooking and there's this. You know, there's all of this kind of thing which kind of springs up, book clubs. You know, it springs up when you have a group of people like that. 
and people, even though it's a little out of the way for anyone who's ever been in Kanab, it's not really on your beaten track, I've had people say, I do more here in Kanab than I did living in L.A. In fact, I just talked to a gentleman who just moved up. He's one of our marketing people. And he said, I can't believe it. You know, I lived in L.A. all these years, and I didn't do half of the stuff that I do now. So I like that, that we've created a community within a community. Many of our staff are involved with their local choir. We just did the Music Man. And, of course, we all turned out not a better right, community. Right. So, But one of our cat caregivers was the main lead. Right. And, you know, so, I mean, these are the kind of things that we do for our people. I like what you said, that you're, you're building a community within a community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and every business or nonprofit organization or for-profit organization needs to build that community. Exactly. You know, because probably what you all have in common is your love for animals. Yeah, you got it. But people are multifaceted and very and, different and very very different and so what are the other ways that we can help people feel like they belong and that there's a place for them and even though we're so different in terms of everything other than our love for animals mm-hmm. how else can we relate to each other yeah, yeah. and that is that's very very important because you. we want to keep people at that job you know we don't want people to feel that they're not needed or valued and so they leave you know because we right. we want to have people stay a long time doing what they do so help us understand um the, the financial needs that that again that you have mm-hmm. at best friends but that people's local yeah. uh, shelters have I mean, what, what does that yeah. look like well like how do people give money to you and they, they have they, like a monthly they you know, give money all kinds of ways. Okay. You know, we have a, a membership program, and again, all that information is on our website. Mm-hmm. Anyone who gives $25 a year or above gets a copy of our magazine, which comes out several times a year. It's a full-color magazine. What's in that magazine? Um, it's a general news magazine related to animals and what other people are doing. You know, right. we feature. It's not all about best friends. It's not a newsletter. It's, it is a magazine. Got it. And I do a column. It's like a Dear Abby, but it's Ask Faith. So I get, Ask Faith. I, get, I do a column in that. Well, I'm going to be writing you about Pecker. Yes. My seven, eight-month-old... That, anyway, yeah. yes. <laughs> I need help. I, I'm the one you're. Therapy. I'm the one you're going to be Becker's happy. I need therapy. Yeah. Okay. So, um, <laughs> but we have other ways in which people contribute. The biggest, the biggest way we receive funds is through individuals. We call them our members. They're right. our supporters. We do also get grants. We get uh, foundations. We just recently built a new puppy building. It's actually two buildings because there's one, an isolation and then a socializing building. And we received a lot of uh, interesting grants. We got one from eBay, for example, hmm. which helped, was part of the funds for that building. To build the building. Mm-hmm. Oh. So um, we have people that do that research and get the grants. A lot of our money now, because we've been around for a while, is through wills and bequests. So when people maybe don't have a lot in their lifetime to give away because they don't know how much they're going to be spending, but they'll put best friends in their will, and then when they pass on, that money can come and, and go to work for the animals. Wow. So that is quite a considerable part of our our income now. So, yeah, we have to work at it pretty hard. Do a lot of uh, like local communities have similar type 
sanctuaries or programs that a person could become a member of to where they're giving oh, yes. $5 a month or $25 a year or absolutely or more than that oh yeah, yeah. oh absolutely so and again, i think so if you're in your if you're you know around your area and this is making you think you know hearing this and you're thinking i could do something just check around ask around do you have a a humane society local an spca do you have a no kill um, rescue, you know, a cat rescue or a dog rescue, and then find out what their needs are. And you know what a lot of people like to do? They like to give things. And we love that. Wish lists are wonderful. We have them up on our, our website and we publish it in our other literature that we send out. And we have got the most amazing things from our wish list. We what, always what, have, what? well, we always have four by four four-wheel drive trucks. I think that's like, kind of like a standard. Right, so people will donate a truck to you. you. Know, and, and so that we have had that. Okay. But we'll be very precise. We have a clinic, an on-site clinic, staff veterinarians, and we'll put very specific medical equipment on there. And someone will call up oh, and wow. say, I've got that. We got a fantastic ultrasound wow. just a while back, an endoscope. You know, we're the best equipped clinic in southern Utah, I think, with all this equipment, and most of it's donated. Does your son work there? Is that where he's a veterinarian? Not at the moment. He he did. He worked there for about 10 years as a vet tech and and that. He's now in Ohio, Mm -hmm. Cincinnati, but he does high-volume spay-neuter work. Mm. He just got back from Mexico, where he was part of a team that did 767 surgeries in six days. Oh, my gosh. And my son is a very fast surgeon. You know, he is your five-minute cat's bay. Wow. So he he was a very valuable member of the team. Wow. Because that's what he does for a living now. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) You kind of don't think about that unless you know the veterinary world. But that's because of major surgery. And in that part of Mexico, Quintana Roo, They've seen, over the years they've been doing that program, a huge reduction in stray animals. So, yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. What's your hope for the work that you're doing? The hope is, and this is our mission, this is the, the actual stated mission of Best Friends, is to bring about a time when there are no more homeless pets. Wow. That's the goal. That's the mission. And that's a big challenge. But that's what we're aiming for, and this is why we do what we do. This is why we have the campaigns that we have. Um, This is why we talk about what we do, try to get as many people involved in it, because no one group of people can do this. Everybody's got to play their part. And if we all play our part, we take care of the animals we have, we keep the animals, that's the first home forever home. Uh We adopt where we can. Uh, we take care of our cats. We we follow up on them. We give them, you know, a microchip so we can track them. You know, all of these things are going to help bring about a time when mm. we're just not killing this many animals. Mm. You know, when these animals are valued, and that's really what we're all about. That's why we started doing it all those years ago. I think uh, Sean, who I mentioned, uh, who helped to organize the big group that from our company that went to volunteer. I think it's on his email signature, something like, what does it say? Every every home should have a, a dog and every dog should have a home. So, right, exactly. Uh, and that's our mission. That's our mission. Mm-hmm. These animals are incredible. They're incredible gifts to us. Mm-hmm. They give us so much. And in a sense, that's what we owe them back, is we owe them homes, we owe them a decent life, we owe them not death. 
which is, you know, unfortunately what happens to so many now. I think that an individual or a community or a society or a family unit is going to be judged on, on what we do with those who are helpless, mm-hmm. um, whether that's the children, mm-hmm. the elderly, mm-hmm. animals. Disabled. Disabled. You betcha. Yeah. Yep. And the rewards are there. It speaks volumes. Yes. And you talked earlier about the kind of instant karma in your seminar, that when you do give out, you receive back, when you do make that effort. And this is what so many people, we have so many visitors now that come to us, and they say, this is the best vacation I've ever had in my life. And they're working really hard. (laughs) Because the rewards, when you work with people who are grateful... And that's the human people who are grateful. And sometimes people do a lot of work with people who aren't that grateful. But animals always are grateful. Always, always. So this is really why it's so rewarding. And Mm -hmm. you get a lot of people that repeat. They come back Mm -hmm. over and over again. Just yesterday I saw these ladies, and I know they were just here. And they said, see you in February. They already had their... And so they're twice a year people. And these are people are traveling. They're not local. I mean, they're getting on a plane, they're flying to Las Vegas, they're renting a car, they're driving four hours to get to to us. You know, we really are the the build it and they will come business because we're not easy to get to. And you're not putting them up at the Four Seasons and Uh providing room service. No, 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 they're on their own. They find their own place to live. And then we say, come and pick up poop. Yeah. So... (laughs) And it's and what I love You're is You're on to something, why? and what I love is if you if you do say to people, Oh, you know, what what do you do? You know, you'll find the, the corporate lawyers, you'll find the um, transplant physicians, you'll find you know, all of these people with sort of very as well as just regular folks like like all of us, but people who come from lofty parts of their lives. A lot of um, actresses from the Hollywood world have come in. And uh, very hard workers, wonderful, wonderful young folks that have come in. So animals are very leveling and very humbling mm-hmm. because we're all the same when it comes to it. You mm-hmm. know, no one gets any special treatment from a dog or a cat. You're all wonderful. You know, whether you have no home and you're living in your car or you have a mansion in Bel Air, you know, the dog is going to relate to you exactly right. the same. And I think people like that. I love that. Mm-hmm. Faith, do you have a final message for our listeners? Well, A, to thank you very much for this opportunity to talk to everyone today. I'm very, very thrilled, very honored that you included me in this program. And just to say, love your animals, love your pets. You know, when you've, after you've listened to this, turn around and give a nice big kiss and a pet oh. to whoever's sharing your home. And if you're thinking about adding a pet to your home, go to your local shelter and adopt one. Fabulous. You're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Not only amazing as a speaker and conveying your your belief system, but just I mean what you're doing. And I was I was unaware. I thought, oh, she's running this place in southern Utah. Good for her. That's incredible. But my gosh, the work that you're doing mm-hmm. around the world is just so inspiring. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.